Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by Carrier. Turn to the experts. David, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hello, Jim. How you doing? Wonderful. How about you? Doing good. Except for this foundation issue I've come up on. Okay. What I'd like to talk to you about, see if you can make any recommendations, I definitely have a serious problem. I've had a couple of uh, foundation companies come out and look at this issue for me. This home I bought is an investment. It has a 10-foot add-on on one side of the home. It's a 10-foot wide, 30-foot long. And it seems that the people decided that they didn't need to put steel in this foundation. So this thing has cracked multiple times across uh, the directions, and I'm trying to find out, is there any companies out there that could support this, get it back up level, or is it just hopeless? So th- there's no steel in the concrete at all, and so you got pieces that are separating and one se- side's higher than the other? Yes, sir. It's uh, three main sections across the way, <clears throat> and... Uh, at one time, the crack was really, uh, to me, it was a very inch wide at the top. And I, I probed through there trying to locate steel, and I never could tell if there was steel. I'm going to say there's not steel in that part of the house. Okay. Now, it's not just where the two join together that it's separated. It's it's out in the room itself, right? Yes, sir. Okay. You know, this is common in wartime houses as well. Uh, you just you hit the nail on the head. Okay. Uh, there is absolutely no way to repair that concrete. <laughs> Dang. Now you could you have some options if the room is good. You know, if the if the uh, structure is good, it can be supported. The old concrete taken out and new concrete put in, rather pricey. Uh, but that that really is the only option because the the whole purpose of steel and concrete is to hold it together when it cracks because all concrete is going to crack and you know once once somebody builds it wrong that way there's not much you can do to to make it right wow uh, even uh and I had one one crew that come out, and I'm gonna just throw this out there. They suggested drilling some, say, pylons through, right, and pouring that and giving a a couple of inches across, and raising the part where it enters into the main house. It would have a step down. Does that sound like a far fetched grab at trying to correct that? Yes. Wow. Okay. Now, but again, I want to make it real clear, that's only if there's no steel in the concrete. Not not, right. not where the two join together. If the, you know, where the two join together, if there's no steel there, that can be addressed. But if there's no steel in the concrete itself, there's nothing that nothing that is going to fix that problem because that was that was just built wrong to begin with. Yeah, that uh, man. You know, we have these dry seasons. I really see that foundation move. Uh, I mean, yep. It just I, it's a problem I've dealt with for many years. You know, as a rental, but I'm still like to address it and get it corrected. I don't. I just. I don't know if I could uh, section that, cut it out by section, try to get back in there. But then I know it's got to be uh, cost more than the house is worth, probably. 
Yeah. Well, you can figure that if you got to support the, is it the addition part that's bad, or is it the house, the original house? The original house is fine. It's only okay. the, uh, the ten foot addition. Okay, so you can put cleats on the outside of that addition, jack it up, and like I said, remove that concrete and pour new concrete in there with steel. Just a reminder: it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Hello, Bill. Hello, Jim. Uh, great show. Thank you. Uh, uh, we have a guest bedroom, which, uh, I, I mean, a guest uh, bathroom, and uh, about four or five times a day, the the toilet there will start to make a noise almost like a rolling thunder. You don't have to be flushing. You don't have to be in there. And then it goes away. We, we don't have any idea what's, what's causing that. Any thoughts? The house is five years old. Well, it kind of sounds so like, like the... Like the water is leaking by and, and it's having to fill the tank back up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if I, I look, I don't see any water dripping into the bowl and you know or anything like. Yeah, that. but if it goes slow enough, you you won't see it there. Uh, and uh-huh. the fact that you're saying it's only like four or five times a day means it's moving really slow. And uh, right. easiest way to check it if that's what it is is just shut the water off. Well, you can put color in too, but shut the water off and just put some Vaseline on the uh, edge where the flapper goes, and mm-hmm. that'll that'll seal it. And if if uh, you don't get water, if you don't hear that noise after you put the Vaseline on, you know it's just a flapper. Change it out, and you're done. I see. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. You bet. You okay. take care. Take care. I'm trying to decide between purchasing a kit pavilion from Yardistry a 12 by 20 or building from scratch with eight by eight posts. I have a patio that it is running from four to six inches thick. Well, I need to put piers down for the kit or if I build my own or is the deck thick enough to hold the pavilion? The kit weighs around a thousand pounds. Greg in Flower Mound. Well, Greg, I live right near you because I'm out in Double Oak and you know, I built a, uh, 20 by 20 cover last year and i've got my uh, actually a hot tub sitting on a oh what size is that i guess a 12 by 12 uh patio that i'm wanting to put a cover over as well and i have debated the same thing and i will tell you what i came up with because i just built a, a cover at the deer lease i will put my post into holes drilled in the ground and encase it in concrete and the main reason is the wind we have you know your patio could probably handle the weight with no problem the bigger issue you know like i said i've got my hot tub sitting on the patio but that's all spread out the problem with the weight from a pavilion cover like that is it's going to be sitting just on the post and so it it doesn't distribute the weight evenly so that in itself can be a problem and should the patio move, there is no underpinning a four-inch piece of concrete and picking it up. So by drilling into the ground and setting your post into it, one, it's going to be more stable. But for me, the bigger reason is the wind. We have horrible, horrible winds. And it seems that uh, some of those winds seem to be getting worse a little bit. But this year has been 
more so than other years, just horrible on the winds. So if you set it on the patio, how are you going to mount it down? Yes, they make anchors that you can bolt it down with and all that kind of stuff. But we get a 50, 60 mile an hour wind blowing through and you got this big kite mounted to that piece of concrete. It's very easy for those bolts to pull loose. It's not real easy, but with the winds we've got pushing and hammering back and forth on that cover, it can happen. By drilling into the ground or digging into the ground and setting your posts into the ground with concrete around them, you're securing that cover where you don't have to worry about it blowing away or racking in the wind and things like that. With the with the bolts into the patio, basically, on the surface, when the winds blow hard enough, even if it doesn't blow it away, it can tend to let those posts lean over and rack, where, again, down into the soil, you're going to eliminate that risk. So for me, I would recommend set your post in the ground, encased in concrete, and normal is to go down anywhere from 25, typically a third of the height of your post, down into the ground. That's to give it great stability and keep it from moving. So this question came in from Jody in Rockwall. Enjoy the show. I need both replacement tile floors as well as inside painting of my house. What do I do first? Paint or have the flooring installed? I'm concerned that if I have flooring, tile replaced, they remove baseboards. Is tile installed under the baseboards when it is initially installed? Conversely, if I have the painting done, I'm at risk for the baseboards removal after it has been painted as well as possible drop stains on the floor tile. The house was built in 2001. Well, you 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 actually are correct in having some concerns over that because in most cases the tile will go under if not the baseboards at least under the cove molding the the cord around or you know whatever they used on uh, along with the baseboards. Uh, if all you have is baseboards, yes, it would go on underneath it. So in most cases, the baseboard is removed, the tile put in, and then the baseboard reinstalled. So do your floor first, then do your painting, because the floors can be protected when the painting has taken place very easily. But if you do the painting first, just like you said, if you got to remove the baseboards and everything, you are in jeopardy of messing up the paint job. So why take the risk? It is much easier to just go ahead and do the floors first, then your painting, and you won't have to worry about it that way. And, you know, the, the painters use drop cloths if, if they're any good or doing it right. Uh, so even if you don't trust the drop cloths to get everything, you can come in and, you know, roll out those rolls of paper to cover the floor first and then let them still use their drop cloths and everything. You can have double protection, no concern over getting something on the floor. And quite frankly, if they do get something on the floor, normally, as long as you clean it up right away, it won't be an issue, especially if it's tile. With Muhammad, he's got a new foundation in, getting ready to build, and 
let's be real here. There's a shortage on building materials. Well, uh, first thing I would tell you is they can't get it. And there's nothing they can do to get the roof deck that's got the radiant barrier on it. However, they can get radiant barrier material and put it under your shingles instead. And that would still give you that same protection. Um, if they don't want to do it, there is a company, Energy Q Radiant Barrier. They're right here in Colleyville. They can get you the material. Uh, you can talk with, uh, with them at 1-800-900-6220. And I, I personally would do that, especially in the areas, like you mentioned, where you have cathedral ceilings and stuff. Uh, in the rest of it, you can lay that radiant barrier on the attic floor, and uh, it does great to protect your insulation from getting into too hot of uh, attic temperatures. I mean, the thing is, what what insulation does is it slows the heat transfer. What radiant barriers do is stop the heat transfer. So the, I, that's where I would head with the radiant barrier part. As far as the foundation, now that it's already in, there's not much you can do as far as making the foundation itself better, but you can control the moisture around the home. So when you're getting ready to do your landscaping and planting and things like that, one thing I want you to do is a drip irrigation for the foundation. Then make sure that you don't put uh, barriers around for holding the plants, you know, like uh, edging and stuff that holds water behind it. Always have it where the water can drain away from the foundation because it's impossible to keep it dry all the time. But you can keep the moisture even all the way around it, and that'll keep that foundation from moving. Beyond that, uh, you're still going to be having some issues with lumber and different things like that that are in short supply. But uh, enjoy the new house. It's going to take probably a little bit longer to build than normal, but it, you, it'll be well worth the time. I'm wondering who to call for a consultation on a generator for backup in the city in the event of a power outage. I'm looking at portables. Would you call an electrician, etc.? Well, not if you're looking at portables. If you're going to look at a standby generator, and, and understand there is a difference between a standby generator and a portable generator. Standby generators are sitting there tied into your breaker box, and if your power goes out, that generator will kick in. Usually there's going to be a, a little bit of a lag, you know, 10 seconds or something. But it kicks in and starts powering the house. A portable generator is not designed to do that. You pull the portable generator out when the power's out, and you can crank it up plug things into it like the refrigerator and different stuff like fans and stuff like that uh, and be able to run those appliances or lights or whatever you want off that portable generator. And so that's going to be the, the biggest difference. If you're looking at a standby generator, I recommend you take a look at Generac. Uh, they, I mean, they set the standard. They They know what they're doing when it comes to standby generators and yes you do want to have either a company who specializes in installing those generators or an electrician hook it up and the main reason is if it's hooked up improperly when 
the lines go down and the generator comes on, you don't want it backfeeding through the power company's lines and, and shocking the guys trying to repair the lines. And that's the reason it's critical that somebody who knows what they're doing hooks it up. Now, when it comes to standby generators, you can look at Hondas if you want because they run nice and quiet. Uh, I personally have a generator from Champion that I got at uh, oh Camping World because I use it to run my RV when I'm not where I have hookups and stuff. So it's a, a little higher end than your normal, uh, you know, 4,500-watt generator, yet it's it's a uh, quieter than what you're going to get, say, going to Lowe's or Home Depot. Uh, when we had the freeze, I ran mine for that week straight uh, and and kept heat going in my house and stuff like that that way. Uh, so, yeah, the, the standby generators are great. You just got to run extension cords to them. And when we left, I was talking with Jimmy and Garland about slip lining sewer pipes. And, uh, Jimmy, are you there? Yep. Okay, so the first thing that has to be done is the pipes have to be cleaned out real good. So you end up having them hydroblasted to clean them out. Then they basically blow this sleeve down and through there. And they expand it once it's all in, and it's got a coating that will adhere it to the pipe. So you basically have a sleeve that is using the original pipe as its housing. Now, if you're doing straight-run big city sewer lines, they actually will slide a new pipe down through the old pipe. Uh, breaking the old pipe out of the way. But on residential, that's not what they're doing. They're they're literally just lining it and utilizing what's already there. There's good and bad to that. One, it can be less expensive. But they can't make turns. They can't do T's or Y's or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and if you got dips in your current lines, you're going to have a dip when this is done as well. It doesn't do anything to correct any issues that may be pre, you know, just from the pipes being in the ground for all those years. So there are some good and bads, but it, in some cases, it, it is a good way to go. What do they do at the tees? They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't do them. It's just it's made for straight runs. So when you get to a tee, you're going to have to dig it anyway. Yep. Okay, very good. This came from Ron in Granbury, Texas. And his message says, Goodman or American Standard? I'm going to have to replace a unit. I can't find too much difference in the two. American is quite a bit more expensive. Just asking for your take. Thanks, Ron. Well, Ron, that's like saying you can't find much difference between a Ford Focus and a Cadillac sedan. I mean, they both got four wheels, they got an engine, they're going to get you from point A to point B. The difference in air conditioning systems are very much the same. You've got a system that's designed to cool. Where the difference comes in is the tolerances, the noises they make, uh, and quite frankly, a lot of times, the longevity that it'll last. American standard systems are superior systems designed to last a long time and in the air conditioning industry we have different tiers 
of air conditioning systems. American Standard, Lennox, Train, Carrier are all up here on Tier 1. They're the, the best units out there. They're the ones that are going to last, be quiet, and perform the best. We got Tier 2 units, which uh, are a lot of times subunits from those main carriers in order to be more cost effective. Um, and then we got the lower end, which are builder's grade entry models that aren't designed necessarily to last all that long, but they're going to cool you down. Again, Ford Focus versus Cadillac sedan. I mean, they're going to get you from point A to point B, just not going to be as nice and not have as nice of bells and whistles. Uh, for me, that the quietness of a unit is is a big deal. When you're sitting there trying to, you know, sit in peace, read, watch TV, listen to music, whatever, and the air conditioner's noise is just blasting you out, that's when you notice the big difference. So for me, I stick with the name brands, American Standard, uh, Carrier, Lennox, Train. Uh, I do own an air conditioning company. I am an American Standard dealer for that very reason. So I do both uh, American Standard and Carrier Systems. So uh, if, and I know that the money difference really isn't all that great, but I'm gonna also caution you on something. It's not the, just the brand of AC system that you buy that makes a difference. It's also how it's installed. That makes as much difference as the brand does because you can take a cheap system and have a great install and you'll have a system that functions properly you can take a great system and have a bad install and no matter what you do you can't get that system to perform the way it needs to so you've you've actually when you're looking to change out an air conditioning system you've got two things you've got to look at one what brand do you want to go with two who do you want doing that install? Because that is the thing that's going to make a huge difference on it is the installation crew. I, I got to be honest. He's right about one thing. A slab foundation can be more problematic than a pier and beam block and base. To go in and level a pier and beam, you're typically just going in for a day and make some minor adjustments. $2,000. And that's whether it's a pier and beam or block and base. They're very simple to make adjustments. As long as you got good crawl space, you kept the ventilation open, and you didn't end up with any wood rot. Slabs, they're expensive to level when they've got to be done. Um, they're expensive when you got to work on the plumbing under them. They're expensive for everything except the building of them. And that's why contractors went to them. They were cheaper to build. And I will tell you, even up in the northern states, like uh, Minnesota, for instance, they never had slabs up until probably 10, 15 years ago. Uh, someone got the brilliant idea. You know, everything was basements to get below the freeze lines. Someone got the brilliant idea. Let's put styrofoam down around the structure. That holds the freeze line away. We can build slabs. Guess what they've got now? Foundation problems. Stuff they never had before. And so, yes, it does. It can make a huge difference how it's built, but also how well it's going to last. I personally love, I'm, I live in a slab house myself, but I, I do love the old 
uh, pier and beam type houses. That's where you got a perimeter concrete beam, crawl space underneath, you know, where you can make adjustments and everything. Uh, they're just great old houses to work on, and they're coming back. And the main reason they're coming back, especially in the Houston area, is flooding. Because with the new building codes, you've got to be so high above flood stage. Well, our ground isn't there. And so a lot of times what we're doing is we're going in with a pier and beam house. We've got a crawl space underneath it. The house is up off the ground. And it's going to be a lot healthier for everybody. You watch. That's the, you're, we're going to have far fewer problems. With slab houses, we say this in the business all the time. They're building them today to keep us in business 20 years from now when you're in the foundation repair business. Hi, this is Pauline, and thank you for taking my call. I'm fine. Um, just a quick question. I mm -hmm. am on a pier and beam home, and there's an ongoing discussion in my neighborhood as to whether or not we should be leaving our vents open all year, closed all year, closed during the winter. You know, those are the vents that are for the underneath right. side of the house. Yeah, there, there should be no discussion or debate about it. They need to be left open year-round. Never totally close year them round, off. Even when it's cold. Yep. Okay, yeah. Because I had a couple yep. open and some shut. So definitely open all year round. Thank yeah. What so happens when you close them, especially when it's cold like that, the humidity levels just skyrocket underneath that house. And uh -huh. that's what starts causing wood decay and things like that. So, yeah, keep them open year round. Okay. Thank you very much. I will share that with my neighbors. <laughs> all right. You take care. Have a good day. 214-787-1080. And, you know, a lot of people think that they can close those off and, you know, it'll stay warmer underneath. Let me tell you, as somebody who works under these homes, it is comfortable underneath those homes, even in the winter months. Uh, the, the, the whole key thing for the ventilation is to lower humidity levels, not not the temperature level. That's really not what the vents are for. So keep them open year-round, and your your uh, your wood underneath that crawl space will, will thank you for it. And the secondary thing, do not insulate the crawl space. A lot of times people want to go put fiberglass insulation up. Don't do that. It holds moisture. You know, there's a lot of air gap in fiberglass insulation, in cellulose insulation. It's the air gap that actually helps with the R value. Uh, it's just dead airspace. And the other thing it does, though, when it gets into an area like that crawl space, it'll hold moisture, and it holds it against the wood and causes wood rot. If you are totally insistent that you're going to put some insulation underneath, which I don't recommend, but if you're going to put some insulation underneath, spray foam, closed cell only. It doesn't take on moisture. And it'll it'll uh, you know seal it up where you're not getting air infiltration, and it'll help with that temperature ever so slight. But I'll be honest with you, most people don't ever notice that temperature change. Let's head over to uh, Richardson, Patrick. How can I help you? Hey, yeah, I've got a dishwasher that doesn't seem to drain properly. Um, I had read somewhere try to stick a coat hanger in there, but looks like the uh, open is too small or you know, just wouldn't go, but maybe a half an inch or something. I was wondering if there's some type of a solution that'll drain, help with a clog, or, or well, do you think it may be something where else? where were you trying to stick the coat hanger that it wouldn't go? Because that pipe should, that tube coming out for the discharge should be a three-quarter inch. 
Okay. Um, I don't know. I was I was the uh, reservoir that's that the filter. You know, it's got one of those filters. Okay, so you were trying to do it from the inside of the dishwasher? Yes, yes. Yeah, no, you, you have to go outside the dishwasher and uh, either disconnect it from uh, if it's hooked up to the garbage disposal or the pipe underneath the sink. Right. And and that's normally where you would try to run the the coat hanger through it. or okay. Or you got to get underneath the dishwasher and, and pull the line loose there. And run or, it because you're, you're or, only or running I, it through that tube, not not through the dishwasher itself. Okay, so I just have to take the dishwasher out, or is there enough room underneath, like you said? Yeah. Sometimes you can do it from underneath. It'll depend on the model of dishwasher. But right. most of the time, if you'll pull the, the other end loose, the, the one that's going to the into the garbage disposal or the pipe itself, that's usually where you'll find the clog. Okay. All right. And you you wouldn't recommend trying a liquid plumber or anything like that. Oh right? no, not in a dishwasher, no. Okay. All right. Anything, any other tips, or is that about it? No, I think that's going to be it because uh, it, it, it's just not discharging, is all correct. I'm sorry. One more time. The, it's the just not pump discharging. Pump? Yes. Yeah, the water's just not draining. Is the pump coming on? I'm not not sure. Because it, it really I mean, it gets rid of it, it gets rid of some water. It just leaves. A little bit at the bottom. Okay. Yeah, uh, it could be the pump, but more than likely you're, you're, it's going to be a plugged line like you're looking for. Okay. Well, thank you. Right. Yeah, You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.